Sorry for the interruption. Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Our podcasts keep community strong, and for the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Happy listening. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR's Saturday breakfast show. And uh, thank you very much for those people who have donated to keep 3CR going and Solidarity Breakfast and the breakfast shows in general going for another year. We haven't quite reached our target. Uh, We could certainly do with a a little bit more help, but we certainly are very grateful to the generous people who have thrown in some money to uh, keep the station going. We've still got a bit uh, to make. We've got a variety of different uh, uh, benefits going to happen over the next few months, but uh, still, uh, you can um, donate at any time, 3cr.org.au forward slash donate, which is the online uh, section. You can also you can always put in that you're donating specifically for uh, Solidarity Breakfast. That would be so nice, and I'd probably reach my target with all that generosity. Uh, today's program is going to be about activism. Uh, you may have caught up with the fact that uh, Block Aid Australia is uh, moving into Sydney to uh, um, uh, run. Uh, from June 27th to July the 2nd, they're going to converge on Sydney uh, from Monday, June the 27th to blockade the streets of Australia's most important political and economic centre and cause disruption that cannot be ignored. Now, uh, Blockade Australia uh, are making this announcement that they're uh, going to... uh, uh, continue with this mobilisation uh, to resist climate destruction in the face of dramatic repression by police. Uh, you would have heard that uh, the police raided a, uh, a a property near Sydney on the 19th, on Sunday, they, and uh, they put out a press release. The uh, police put out a press release after the raid which is uh, was reported in The Guardian and other places. The New South Wales police, in inverted commas, feared for their lives during raid on climate protesters, said Assistant Commissioner. Uh, quite bizarre terminology, fear, feared for their lives. This is haunting because this is exactly the uh, terminology used by Zachary Ralph uh, in defending his uh, shooting 
in at uh, Yundamu, uh, shooting death, uh, going into someone's home early in the hours and uh, shooting them as they are coming out of their bedroom, feared for their lives. Uh, they're obviously getting their terminology beautifully in line. Uh, fascinating stuff. But uh, the uh, Blockade Australia uh, have uh, footage of the events and this is what they said about what happened. Recently found footage shows four unidentified police officers who had been secretly recording activists on a private property west of Sydney. The footage shows two plain-clothed police officers who clothed officers who entered the property in the vehicle, and two officers in full camouflage who had been spotted by individuals on the property hiding in the bushes, filming them. The two armed, camouflaged people found hiding above our campsite did not speak to us or identify themselves or offer any sign to indicate that they were police officers. The vehicle was subsequently driven into activists on the driveway while attempting to leave. At no point did any of the climate activists harm or threaten to harm the camouflaged intruders or occupants of the vehicle. It is possible that the unmarked car was dented when it smashed into their bodies. However, we cannot verify this. No crimes have been committed on the property and this spying and raid demonstrated an immense overreach of power. The activists have spent all day today cleaning the mess and assessing the destruction left behind by U- US, um, New South Wales police. The property was strewn with rubbish such as Coke cans and subway packaging. Police had smashed the windows of every single vehicle on the property. Tents, sleeping gear and clothing were cut up and scattered. Communications equipment was destroyed. Food was emptied onto the floor and trampled. An activist associated with Blockade Australia said this is a clear example of the frightening repression by police being increasingly faced by activists on this continent. It shows a deeply concerning vision of the attacks on democracy preventing meaningful action on climate destruction. By nightfall, seven people were in custody and about 40 people were stranded in the Blue Mountains, many with no bedding or warm clothing. Several people who had fled into the bush when they saw the armed intruders were unaccounted for, with temperatures rapidly dropping and no communications. Those forced to leave the property were acutely worried. Now, that's a completely different view of what really happened on that day. And uh, the uh, climate activists who have been, um, who were taken up and arrested, uh, they, uh, of the seven, five have been released under extreme and punitive bail conditions. These include uh, residing only at their designated bail address reporting weekly to the local police station, remaining within the state and not entering the Sydney CBD. In addition, activists have been given unprecedented non-association orders which prevent them from interacting with designated members of their community. These are extremely controlling and unusual measures for non-violent activists, particularly given that no crimes were underway. The remaining two addressees have been refused bail and will be imprisoned for weeks until their court hearing on the 12th of July.
In the days after the raid, an additional activist was arrested by plainclothes police at a Sydney train station. An activist associated with the group said, this is an extremely concerning escalation in the repression of climate activists by police. It is intended to intimidate those who seek to challenge climate destruction on this continent with the threat of imprisonment and to protect the system destroying our future from community resistance. Now, um, we're going to be talking to Hayden from uh, Block Aid Australia later on in the program. And uh, hopefully he will give us more information about the uh, what Blockade Australia is doing as it moves ahead with the June 27th Sydney mobilisation to resist climate destruction. Uh, it is definitely heating up on in a, on a whole lot of levels. But uh, anybody who has ever had anything to do with uh, activism and interaction with the police will shudder when they hear uh, it being reported by the New South Wales police that they feared for their lives during the raid on climate protesters. Um, they are, they have no shame, no shame at all. But be, uh, we're going to um, go now to a, uh, a report on the um, No Justice, No Peace, No Guns for Police rally, which, which was held on Saturday, last Saturday. Uh, this was called by the Yundamu Elders uh, after the... Um, uh, Finding no no not guilty finding uh, against uh, Zachary Ralph, the anger is palpable. Justice has not been found to be done, uh, and uh, they uh, had called for a na- national rallies uh, uh, against police guns, holding guns, and coming into community and basically murdering their citizenry. Um, and uh, this is uh, this is uh, what happened in Melbourne, and it happened in other places in the country. Uh, I'll, I'll play a song at the end of it, which is uh, has got a bit of language in it. It's a bit tough, this song, um, but it uh, certainly uh, reflects a certain amount of the anger that uh, is being felt. It's called "Bow Down" by Barker, and uh, so once it comes to the song, I'm giving you a language warning. So there, that's what I'm doing. You're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, Later on, as I said, we'll be talking to Hayden from uh, uh, Blockade Australia. Uh, And uh, later on, we'll be talking to Don Sutherland about this uh, uh, wage increase for the lowest paid workers in Australia. But first up, no justice, no peace, no guns for police rally. We stand on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Don't ever forget it. Our land, we come as people. We're not violent. We come to bring peace. Peace to this country. We haven't got the guns. Haven't got the military. We haven't got the force. We've got our land. And our land's been taken off us through force. When this mob first come here, they send our land and our people, and what do they do? They try to wipe us out, wipe us off the face of the planet. They took our names, they took our land, they took our language, took our culture, 
took our dignity, took our respect, took everything. Everything for what? So everyone here can live and breathe and what their mind. Well, how you all going, people? How you all going? You comfortable? You happy? When's enough's enough? When is enough enough? We need support. We need help. We need this country to turn towards us. We don't want no violence. We don't want to be incarcerated. We don't want our land poisoned. Our water polluted. Our kids taken. We don't want any of it. We want to live our lives just like our people have done for thousands of years. This community, every community, but this community that we're here today, what do they want? They don't want to be in threat. They want to be scared. They don't want trauma. They want to leave peace in their own country. All they're asking, all they're asking is for the forces to lay down their weapons. Lay it down. I mean, we can't walk around with boomerangs. We can't walk around with spears. We can't walk around with any of that. I'm walking around with music sticks. If we walked around with any of that, we'd be thrown in jail. It's not fair. Not fair at all. It's good to see everyone here today. Here for a good cause. Your people on the right side. Your conscience is alive. But you gotta what you gotta do, you gotta tell your friends. You gotta tell your neighbours. You gotta tell everyone out there that enough's enough. You've got to start supporting the black folks in this country. My name is Jason Tamaru, multi-clan black fella, traditional. My country's yorta yorta. They try to extinguish me in their courts, but I'm still here. I'm Judge Arong. Red Bendigo area. I'm Barap Barap, Lagaya, Jabakov. My totems are alive. That's my law. There's no guns there. Just harmony. Follow the totem of the black fella. We'll show you the way. Thanks for listening. Next up, we've got uh, Lucy from Solidarity. Um, gives a bit of background on the intervention. It's been 15 years of the intervention in the Northern Territory, and people have been, been suffering under these oppressive, oppressive laws for too long. So, come fill us in. Thanks, Izzy. Um, I would like to acknowledge that we are on Wurundjeri land, and that this resistance uh, and the fight against colonisation, for self-determination, against genocide, 
has been going on for so long and we stand in the footsteps of leaders past and present. Um, let's start, let's, let's do a chant. Disarm the police, Black Lives Matter. 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 Okay. Thank you. Um, I want to start by saying thank you so much to the organisers today um, and to uh, the community leaders in Yundamu uh, who called this rally, who called this National Day of Action in response to uh, the Rolf uh, not guilty verdict. What a terrible blow that was. It wasn't so long ago that all of us were on the streets. I remember it was a Wednesday afternoon, I'm pretty sure, and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of us you know, who heard the call from Yundamu, who heard what had happened uh, to Kumanjai in Yundamu, and who came out and, and drew the connections, you know, what was happening in the US, what was happening all around the world with black lives being denigrated by the police, dying at the hands of the police. Nowhere in the world was there more of a need for a Black Lives Matter movement than here in Australia and certainly in the Northern Territory. This country is crying out for it. And so many people came onto the streets to say, he is guilty, he is guilty, charge Zachary Rolfe. And the fact that he was charged, you know, it was, it was kind of unbelievable and unprecedented that a police officer in the Northern Territory at the, you know, at the 15 year mark of the Northern Territory intervention was actually charged for murder. Uh, you know, that was a victory of the people on the streets. That was our victory that we got that far. But, you know, as leaders in Yundamu have said, there is no victories, there's no justice for Aboriginal people in this country through the court system. It is a stacked game. There was not a single Aboriginal person, you know, on that jury. Shame. Shame. And more than that, the whole trial was set up in such a way, the whole media was set up in such a way as to denigrate and victim blame and find every reason possible to, to say that that militarised man, that guy who had just come off duty in Afghanistan, who was rearing at the bit to go and, and go into the wild west of the Northern Territory, you know, without any, any um, regulations, without anyone watching over his back, who had even kind of refused to adhere to dealing with the police liaison in Yundamu when he showed up there. He was so ready for a brutal, brutal fight. He was read for it. And to not convict him was such a blow. It was such a blow. Shame. So, you know, the fact that those leaders, that the Yundamu community have come out of that massive blow, they came out the very instant that the verdict came down and they said, we will not stop fighting. What we need is a ceasefire. The fact that they called that and that they called for these national days of action and more revival of the Black Lives Matter movement is so important and it's so good to see so many people out here and that Joe uh, and that Izzy, you know, came to the fore and, and actually, you know, Took up, took up responsibility and held this rally here in Melbourne. Thank you, thank you so much to those leaders.
I was actually with Joe. we were just talking then, we were involved in the anti-intervention campaign about a decade ago here in Melbourne. 15 years ago, the Howard government rolled tanks and rolled out the military, but it also rolled out a, a severe political attack. It was a severe economic attack. It was a, it was a profound legal attack on Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. The, the compulsory acquisition of community houses, income management, they were the first people to be put on basics cards. The prescribed areas where communities were, you know, given these insulting and humiliating signs at the front of the community that said no alcohol, no porn. The Racial Discrimination Act was suspended in order to roll this out. Endless shameful policies that Howard had been kind of concocting and growing towards. It was the end, it was the final point of these many, many attacks that he had been working on of, against self-determination and against the victories of the 60s and 70s that had been really majorly won, or at least concessions were won in the Northern Territory. Those, you know, the fact that there was some level of community control, there was some expectation that people would run their lives for themselves. You know, that jobs, community jobs, funding for community jobs, each and every element of those self-determination principles was attacked at the very foundation. Thousands of jobs were cut. Thousands and thousands of community development and employment program jobs cut in an instant. And, you know, the consequences of it were there for everybody to see. Extraordinarily high rates of suicide, malnutrition, child removals gone through the roof in the Northern Territory. The writing was on the wall when Labor came into power, when Rudd, you know, came in. And they said, yeah, we're going to continue these policies. We're going to keep them up. It's for their own good. The victim blaming continued for another 10 years with stronger futures. It has been devastating. You know, and when we hear about the bullets that went into the guns, they are absolutely, those bullets have to be stopped. But the loading of the gun has been the Northern Territory intervention. That punitive criminalisation of Aboriginality that was, you know, set in train in the Northern Territory and then ricocheted out all over the country so that the idea of self-determination now is something that we reach back in our memories for. It's not something that, you know, has been able to come to fruition in the serious way that it needs to for black lives to matter. So, you know, in, in order to stop the killings, in order to stop the police brutality, in order to disarm the police both in terms of their actual guns, but also in terms of their legislation, in terms of the political capital that they are rolling around with in the Northern Territory and around the country. That's what we need to attack. That's what we need to win back. We have an opportunity now because to some extent, the intervention has collapsed in on itself and Labor has finally said that they are not going to continue with the intervention and that's our victory, not theirs. That's our victory. So they have committed to ending any compulsory income management, but we need to make sure that they stick to their word on that and we will have to hold them to it. Because a few days before the election, Albanese was sort of signalling that they may be open to reinstituting it if some communities ask for it. So shame on that concept. 
income management basics cards of all varieties need to go once and for all. Labourers also signalled that they are going to end the porn and alcohol bans that were so humiliating, so devastating, so victim blaming in the prescribed areas. And we need to make sure that that actually happens seriously. But, you know, the root of the problems of any sort of community dysfunction that exists, the root of the problem is the lack of resources, the lack of control and the racism, the relentless racism. And that's what we need to fight positively for. Those community jobs need to come back. No more work for the doll. Community jobs need to come back. They need to be under community control. They need to be well resourced and actually funded properly. Community housing, not the, not the few you know, crumbs that were given. Decent community housing so that people can live with dignity. And respectful healthcare. Every single hospital in this country is crying out for decent healthcare. But nowhere is it in such a crisis and such a disgusting, racist crisis as the, as the remote communities in the Northern Territory and Aboriginal health around the country. We need to fight for community-controlled healthcare and well-funded, very well-funded community healthcare. And that money needs to come from the cops, from the prisons, from the stacks and stacks of prisons that they have built around the country, that they are filling with Aboriginal people. It needs to come from the bureaucracies that they have built around child removals. Bring that money back, give it to the community so that people can look after their own children with dignity and respect. Shame, shame on these governments that have kept people down and continued the policies of protection from the 1920s. Bring back self-determination, disarm the police, and Black Lives Matter. Can't wait today. They're at the Alice Springs Courthouse right now. They're looking at us, they're watching us, I'm sending photos through to them, they're sending photos back to us, and they just love it that we're here, and they're just saying, you know, we, thank you, we love it that you're here, and keep going. Okay, so I've got here the, um, the demands. So these are the demands coming out of Yindamu, and they're the most logical, most sound, um, yeah, most appropriate demands for this time right now that, you know, this whole country could follow. No guns in remote communities. Anti-police must be defunded at large. Only Walpuri governments and authority in their community. An end to all discriminatory powers and laws that were introduced with the anti-intervention. A restoration of laws and structures and respect for local community control. Funding to be redirected from punitive agencies to the community control services. Kids on country and not in custody. We need a black media watch to stop racism in the media reporting on our First Nations people. Defamatory content about Kumanjay Walker must be immediately withdrawn from publication. Power media and elders need to approve any media visits to Yindamu and any media reporting must be accountable um, by coming back to our community. Number 11, journalists need to work using cultural safety framework, local protocols and trauma-informed processes. They must listen and act upon the cultural guidance of the community. Number 12, 
We want cultural safe mental health support for community members with trauma and PTSD. This support must be for the longer term and address the shared and individual PTSD of the community. Number 13, end the racism in the NT courts. 14, a retrial of Zachary Rolfe in Alice Springs. 15, an independent investigation. And the last one, 16, we want Rolf to face our customary law at Yindamu. Oh. So, deadly, deadly demands there. Let's support them to make that happen. You know, thanks everybody for coming down. Um, unless there's anyone else that wants to speak, we'll put on one last song, have a dance, and then do, do whatever you gotta do to keep this campaign going into the future. Um, yeah, and disarm the police. Thank you. <laughs> Love. I ain't come to beat around about the dispossession I'm pent up with aggression bigger than your comprehension Bloodline stretches right back to that Mali brah And you got points but they ain't even valid Khan I go to war every day my black is uniform You say I'm fair skin, I say you're too gone I got these features from my matriarchs, they skin dark And you ain't even know shit about it being hard They used to beat them and then rape them and they took their kids Gone. Tell me why I ain't got trauma in this life I live I see my brothers get ripped by the hands of white pigs I even went on a trip but I came back from it Salute the matriarchy, you ain't fucking with this Salute to all my titters who is handling biz We ain't backing down to no patriarchal shit We come from strong bloodlines, we was raised to quit Bow down Hey, bow down Hey, bow down they used to look down on me, look who's looking up now, bow down, hey, bow down, hey, bow down, hey, they used to look down on us, look who's looking up now, bow down, Tita came to do what she came to do, son, no pity for this cat, says a nuisance, you ain't fucking with this black fella movement, if you think he really is, keep it moving, boogie down with my mob, I keep it groovy, if you got me in a grip, you gon' lose me. I ain't sorry for the way that music moves me. Sorry, not sorry, baby, I am ruthless. You wanna get something straight with me? I walk the hard road when no one was there for me. I pick myself up, I got a lot of strength in me. And that's real talk, you should be fucking scared of me. Now I'm all up on my grind, ain't no stopping my flow. I got that marker in my bones and it's calling me home. Just wait a little bit, then this tid be gone. But I got a presses on my plate. And I got my feet on, I put my feet on them I stomp on the PM, I give a fuck about a government My people don't govern, I don't follow white law Run the yellow RE and that's me, bruh, I'm back and G I love a white B Bow down Hey, bow down Hey, bow down Hey, they used to look down on me Look who's looking up now Bow down Hey, bow down Now, now, now. My total beagle song fly as can 
You're listening to 855 AM. Yeah, and you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And uh, we've got Hayden from uh, Block Aid Australia on the line. G'day, Hayden. How are you? Hi, Annie. I'm doing well. Yeah, a pretty wild uh, week leading up to the uh, Sydney Convergence for Block Aid Australia. Right. I mean, wild is almost an understatement. It's, you know, the kind of police repression that we witnessed in the last week has been almost unprecedented on this continent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, also f- uh, fascinating how they've uh, massaged the media with uh, feared for their lives, which, uh, as I was saying to my listeners, have has a very creepy shadow of the shooting of uh, Zachary, by Zachary Rolfe in Nindamu. That was one of his defence lines, feared for his life. Right, that's exactly it. There's a whole kind of fear campaign being mobilised here, and it's likewise seen in the, the rhetoric around unlawful protest, for instance. It's, it's the notion that what we're doing is criminal, and of course it's quite clear who the real criminals are. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot at stake, isn't there? The, I mean, uh, Blockade Australia has very courageously... Uh, uh, run very effective campaigns uh, targeting uh, key uh, fossil fuel infrastructure to uh, raise awareness of the critical time that we Australia is in and the world is in, in fact. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we need to be confronting these structures of destruction and exploitation directly. You know, the, the time for any kind of performativity in action, I think, is quite clearly far past. And it, it's clear that, you know, these institutions within Australia are not only enabling climate destruction, but actively driving it and resisting any kind of, any kind of mobilisation against climate destruction. So we really do need to be challenging them directly. It's interesting, isn't it, because with the... Uh, uh the election results, the federal government election results, and you don't want to get too um, uh, extreme in your uh, hallelujah moment, but uh, it is definitely was a climate election. It definitely was a climate election. Right, definitely. And the public consciousness has certainly been turning. I think if we look at what, what people have been expressing Say what what has been reported in the in the media in the last week. People are really recognising that what we are doing is is not any kind of radical action. It's it's pragmatic and very justified. And, and people have likewise realised that what the police are doing is is vastly, you know, these kind of repressive tactics are completely unwarranted. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it is a war of uh, opinion, isn't it? Exactly, and that's that's what. Uh, exactly what the New South Wales Police and various right-wing media outlets have have been trying to do. They're trying to present a view of protest as some kind of criminalised activity or something immoral. Mm. Uh, uh, Sydney is an interesting um, topography uh, from the point of view of a person who comes from Melbourne. It's got an awful lot of uh, tunnels and uh, it's difficult to negotiate uh, walking, uh, but obviously you've worked out uh, various things that are key uh, point weak points for this particular uh, co- convergence. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly, and and on a on a larger scale, Sydney itself is is one of those weak points. It's a bottleneck to the system as a whole. It's a, a key nexus within which. 
material flows and labour and all these sort of flows of power are occurring. And so it's, it's really a nexus within a larger Australian system. So um, I know that uh, when uh, the news came out about the raids on the farm, uh, that there would have been uh, people wondering if it was all going to go ahead. But uh, Blockade Australia ha- uh, has made it very clear that uh, the uh, mobilisation starting on June the 27th on Monday is going ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, this kind of oppression that we've been facing is is terrible on so many levels, but at the same time, it's not at all unexpected. This is the inevitable response of power when it is challenged by effective effective mechanisms of disputing that power. And so, you know, it's, it's shocking, but at the same time, it's not surprising. We were prepared for this kind of repression, and we're, we're not going to be intimidated by it. We're not going to be dissuaded from meaningful action. If anything, it just gives us, and I think much of the public, more fire to push on. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously you are being effective because uh, uh, people are being um, picked up and uh, excluded from the community. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So there have been a variety of of legal mechanisms that have been employed by New South Wales Police to try and uh, cripple our movement. Um, So there's a litany of kind of cruel and unusual bail conditions. There's, there's a vast array of uh, like non-association orders, which is really, it's becoming quite normalised for us now, but it's, it's worth remembering that this is actually a very, a very unusual thing, these kind of conditions that have traditionally been used for violent gangs, right? Um, there's people that refuse bail entirely and are being imprisoned for weeks. So they're, they're really throwing everything they've got through the, through the judiciary system to try and immobilise us, to try and uh, prevent people from being able to organise together and take action. Mm, yeah, to, and categorising people, uh, characterising people as being vicious criminals, dangerous and vicious criminals. Right, exactly. Um, well, likewise suggesting that what, what the police have done over the last week has been entirely lawful and justified. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's uh, anybody who's had any act- activist experience and come up against the police must sh- just shudder. I mean, I shudder at uh, what was coming out of the, their mouths in defence of their actions. Right, sure, that what they feel is justifiable or what they feel they can get away with is is shocking. Uh, fortunately, I don't think they have, and I don't think they are. Mm. I think that the, the the media and the public consciousness, for the most part, is rapidly turning away them away from them and towards our cause. And you've uh, your organisation, uh, loose organisation, has called for, for, on people, uh, environmental activists, to actually join you in Sydney. That's exactly right, and perhaps not even environmental activists. I mean, this kind of repression that we're facing is, is not limited to us. It's the problem that affects everybody. Um, a few days ago, New South Wales has passed new laws to further criminalise and uh, punish strikers, for instance, um, strikes that they deem to be illegal. It's the same sort of rhetoric. So I think this fight against state repression is, is one that... Uh, is relevant to all of us, but of course so is the fight for our planet. This fight is everybody's. Can you give us a clue uh, as to what will happen on Monday? uh, Give us a picture of what you think is going to happen. (laughs) 
you know, that's it's a bit hard to say still at this stage, but I think what's quite clear is that people will be descending on the city um, together to to move through it fluidly and to disrupt, uh, you know, these operations of power together. Uh, thank you very much for giving us some time, Hayden, and good luck and keep safe. Thanks, Annie. You too. Yeah. Uh, and that was Hayden from uh, Blockade Australia, and uh, it's all on, starts on Monday, goes to uh, July the 2nd, Defending the Planet. <laughs> with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, another rally happened on uh, Saturday. It was a busy day and uh, it was uh, the beginning of uh, Refugee Week, which is, uh, and I suppose we're now bookending it. It's the end of uh, Refugee Week and uh, many people might think that uh, the refugee issue is a bygone thing with the change of government, but of course... That's not the case. So let's hear a little bit from uh, the first speaker at the rally to find out why it's not all over and why it's still important to be fighting. Okay, 
I think we should start off by giving ourselves an enormous pat on the back and a round of applause. Because the last time we met, we had a Liberal government. The last time we met, we were dealing with Scott Morrison, with the heritage of Peter Dutton as Immigration Minister, with Alex Hawke. We were dealing with a government that not only acted viciously, but had no pretense whatsoever of acting with compassion towards asylum seekers and refugees. Morrison did very little as Prime Minister, but he had the Stop the Boats trophy in his office to celebrate what he did achieve, which was to demonise people fleeing for their lives. And we got rid of them. Our movement, the refugee movement in all its glory across the country, contributed to getting rid of the Liberal government. And that makes a difference. It makes a difference to the Nades Lingam family in Biloela. It makes a difference to the 19,000 people on temporary protection visas who have been offered a path to permanency. It makes a difference to the 9,000 people who were, whose claims were rejected under the so-called fast track process, essentially dismissed out of hand. It makes a difference to all those people. So our protests, our rallies, our vigils, our stalls, our leafleting, everything that the refugee movement has done has made a difference. So give yourself a round of applause. But, and there's always, unfortunately, a but. We can celebrate those changes, but there is so much more that we need to do. The idea that the campaign for refugee rights and freedom is over is unfortunately far from true. We have people still in community detention who are under curfew, effectively in open air jails in the community. We have thousands of people, including Atena, who will be joining us shortly as co-chair, who are on bridging visas, who actually don't even have the status of temporary protection visas. Tens, thousands and thousands, potentially tens of thousands of people on bridging visas with no certainty and no promise from the incoming Labour government that life will change. We're going to be hearing soon from, from a speaker from the Tamil Refugee Council who would explain that while it was really exciting to see that the mass protests and the signatures and everything else got the Nadasalingam family back to Biloela, there are still far too many Tamil families who are living in fear of deportation, whose boats are being turned back by Border Force and the Australian Navy. Even when the New Zealand deal runs its course, a New Zealand deal which is completely inadequate, that will take three years to take refugees to New Zealand, refugees who should be offered the right to live here in Australia, there will still be 505 people who fall completely outside of that scheme. There is nothing on offer for them. There is nothing on offer for asylum seekers and refugees marooned on Papua New Guinea because the Australian government walked away from its responsibilities at the beginning of this year and said, we no longer care, we are no longer responsible for what happens to you. And they're outside the New Zealand deal. And yet they are still the responsibility of successive Australian governments. There are 
14,000 refugees in uh, Indonesia who were trying to get to Australia and Tony Abbott said no one will ever come from Indonesia to Australia. The door is slammed shut. Now Labour has hinted that the door will be nudged open but we don't know how long that will take. We don't know how many people will ex be accepted. There is a danger they will be accepted instead of other refu refugees. And yet half the refugees in Indonesia are Hazaras from Afghanistan who fled from the Taliban. And our governments tell us that the Taliban are bad people and we should be sympathetic to those who flee from them, but they are, lo they are effectively locked in an open-air prison in Indonesia. No right to work, no right to study, subsisting on United Nations handouts. So we're here for them. We're here for all those categories. And we're also here to say that we've got to stop the boat turn back mentality. People who flee, whether it's from Sri Lanka or they flee from other parts of the world through Indonesia, they flee for a reason. And we should be welcoming them here in, in Australia. And ultimately we're here because we need to end the entire process of mandatory detention, the whole idea of locking people up while they're processed. Priya, the mother in the Biloela family, said to SBS the other day, I went into detention a healthy person. I came out an unhealthy mother. And she suffered, quote unquote, only four years. Yet we know there are people still in detention today, even now, who have been detained for seven years or eight years uh, or more. And that's why the fundamental message of this rally is, Albanese, you're our Prime Minister and you stood up on election night and said no one will be left behind. No one will be abandoned. And those are very fine sentiments. And you could start by increasing the rate of job seeker, for instance. They're fine sentiments and they apply to refugees. They apply to asylum seekers. If the Labour government wants to change the way it is perceived, but more importantly, change the reality for tens of thousands of people, it is quite simple. Dump detention, dump offshore detention, dump the boat turns back policy, give permanent visas and protection to everybody in this country who has fled from persecution and war and, and from misery. So that's our message from today. No one is left behind, no refugees left behind. Now, weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when we have experienced and enjoyed the great benefits of privatisation, the wrenching of inefficient essential services from the bloated hand of the public sector and handing them to the efficiency of the private sector and, well, some not-so-essential services like airports and airlines as they recharge the batteries or, or no, the coal and gas and fossil fuel and, and do their bit for the planet. With the only Irish accent I loathe, Alan Joystick, supremo of the airline that used to be our airline, advocating the development of less polluting biofuels, and although we and Alan enjoy the benefits of the super-efficient private sector, Alan is so generous a person he has come up with a role the inefficient bloated hand of the public sector can play, just so it won't feel left out. The public purse, Alan announced, can assist the airline, which used to be by 
footing the bill. Quant asked for money. See the 20 bill or so it copped from the public purse in JobKeeper and other corporate welfare wasn't nearly enough for us to enjoy the collective benefits of the private sector of privatisation, as Alan keeps informing us, and the destination for Alan's less polluting, publicly inefficiently funded, privately efficient polluters also privatised and... Don't airport users just rave about how much cheaper everything is thanks to the private sector monopoly from parking to the walking in the door fee and almost give away food and drink prices. We have to keep asking how can they afford to give us that so cheaply, almost giving everything away. Anyway, the privatised monopoly airport, presumably privatised because government had an ideological objection to a public monopoly because that would lead to ripping off and taking advantage of and knowing the private sector would never dream of. Anyway, things are going so badly thanks to COVID and all that that an airport spokesperson this week decried the fact that the government had not come up with nearly enough corporate welfare for the airport and its struggling shareholders. Heaven forbid it might have to increase its prices. But yes, another fine example of the benefits of privatisation. But none as clear as this energy crisis obviously caused by the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector because there's no way a private sector whose only concern is the community and social good could create a crisis. After all, it's only reasonable that they can turn off the power when they consider the price for that power isn't nearly as high as they demand. And thankfully, corporate welfare came to the rescue. See, there's the important difference between responsible, caring employers, the caring private sector, and irresponsible, evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers. If unions, if workers go on strike, they are fined millions. When the energy behemoths go on strike, they are handed millions, which shows how evil unions get what they deserve and good privatised behemoths get what they don't deserve. If we still have any doubts about the wisdom of handing essential services to caring corporate boardrooms, just imagine what would be happening now if our energy production and distribution were still in the hands of the public sector. Just imagine. And it gets worse for the fossils. The Queensland government has increased royalties on coal for no better reason than they are making massive profits, millions, due to record prices, with the Trublawazi capitalist review expressing how we all feel. A rip-off it gave its objective opinion. While the great corporates themselves, when they got their collective breaths back, declared they would fight this blatant attack on their rights to dig up the land. After all, they keep telling us coal and gas are somehow part of the transition we must make from, uh, well, from, from coal and gas. Indeed, one ad telling us how wonderful is gas calls it renewable gas. And in fairness, it wouldn't hurt if they could just give us a bit of an explanation of that one. But faced with this grossly unfair rip-off, at least great transnational coal giants glen rotten to the core and white profits are heaven, were able to console themselves by announcing record profits. We hope that makes them, and particularly their shareholders, feel just that little bit better and compare their commitment to social responsibility to the irresponsible actions of the lowest of low paid intent on extorting an extra dollar an hour from their caring employers.
from those hard-working shareholders under the economy-wrecking falsehood that the price of labour should at least rise in line with caring business class prices and inflation. It's a disgrace leading us to the much-coveted Consistency of the Week Award. And we're proud to announce the big award has gone to the Reserve Profits Bank Governor Philip Lowpay for others. Isn't it a boon for satire when someone who wants the lowest of low paid to get lower and lower paid's name is Low? Philip Lowpay for others, who two weeks ago agreed the price of labour should keep up with the price of capital, but this week declared the opposite, that the price of labour must decrease and decrease, else their caring employers would be robbed of the difference. But then that price of capital was pointed out clearly in Das Kapital. With Philip Lowpay for others, pertinent point echoed by caring employers that the dollar an hour granted to the lowest of low would cost jobs, bankrupt the economy, close businesses, worse, create the inflation which preceded the crippling dollar an hour. Expressed so sensibly as we have come to expect from our old mate, Innes will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, who declared inflation was due 100% to lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions, and nothing, absolutely nothing to do with caring employers or little matters that are anathema to caring employers like greed. In Innes's language, the inflation which led to the dollar-an-hour decision was caused by the dollar-an-hour decision. Nothing if not logical, the old Innes. And the new Minister for Caring Business Class Relations said Philip Lowpay for others didn't say what he said. But don't worry, Philip, you're, you're still getting the award. Your Consistency of the Week award is on its way. And one caring employer writing a brilliant think piece in the Lord Rupert of Wapping News Very Limited Media, displaying just how much caring employers really care about their wage slaves, or, or sorry, sorry, workers, said a four-day working week would be a disaster because it would make workers so stressed. See? Caring. Thinking only of others. Yes, spot on. Imagine the stress, a day off trying to do what you want to do, what you want to enjoy, spoiled by the constant stress of wishing you were back in the workplace doing your bit for your caring employer. It'd be agony. Speaking of Lord Rupert of Wapping, see he's about to end yet another marriage, this time with former model Jerry Hall, but fair enough, I, I suppose she's getting a bit too old for Rupert. Financial pages informed us a funeral director had raised $10 million, and I thought, this is the greatest miracle since Lazarus or the dear baby Jesus himself, but, but why do you sort out of business? But, but silly me, it turned out to be $10 million, presumably so it can go on dispatching the unraisable. Like those shot up by the day in the U.S. of, of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world mass shootings, lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy exercising their democratic constitutional rights aided and abetted this week by the Supreme Trump. Hang on, hang on. Oh, Supreme Court, ruling a New York law requiring gun purchases to give a reason for wanting a gun illegal. Uh, why do you want to make this purchase? I want to, like, you know, shoot up as many people as I, you know, like, can. 
Right, good reason, good reason. You pass the test. After all, it's your right. Look, look, I recommend this assault rifle. It's got a great shoot-ups record, uh, providing you with minutes of fun, fun, fun. And federally, attempts to prevent uh, potential mass shooters from getting hold of their assault rifles until they turn 21, when they'll be mature enough to shoot up schools and churches and shopping centres and things, have been thwarted by the believers in their liberty, freedom and democracy right to shoot up at birth or pre-birth because the Supreme Trump, or, sorry, court is also about to rule they have the right to shoot up whoever they want to shoot up from the moment of conception. In the week that was sport, in a post-match review after Melbourne returned to the winning list Thursday night, an incisive commentator asked a player, uh, does it feel good to win? Now here's, now here's our big challenging question, listener. Did the, did the player answer A, yes, or B, no? Tough one. Answer next week. Finally, caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer had the rump left in marginal city seats calling for the smelling salts when he declared millions had voted for the coalition, including the hayseed and sheepshit lot, and therefore he would maintain the climate change, if there is such a thing, and energy policy they took to the election. Look, I know he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he obviously hasn't yet twigged, so someone should point out to Constable Duffer that they actually lost the election. Good morning. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast, and we're with Don Sutherland. How are you, Don? Uh, Good day, Annie, and hello to all of your listeners. Hope you're all well. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, been chilly, but uh, chilly but nice. And the, uh, when I was writing here, one of the things that was particularly nice was that the there's a very thin slither of a moon lying on its back. It was uh, oh, wow. quite beautiful, I have to say. Wow, well, that's uh, wonderful to see in Melbourne because it's often um, difficult there because of the haze. <laughs> and pollution, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it was dark, um, so that's yes. nice. Well, I'm, I'm to, as you, as your listeners probably may recall, I'm talking to you from northern Tasmania in, on the land of the Ponrabble people near the mouth of the Tamar River on the western side, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Yes, and uh, that is a much clearer sky. Beg your pardon? It's oh, a much clearer, a much clearer sky. sky. Oh, definitely. It's astonishing. On a clear night, the um, how one sees um, the stars and the patterns of the stars is um, is much clearer. It's it's quite exciting sometimes. And um, we are hoping to talk to you about uh, getting a clearer picture of the outcomes of the national minimum wage, which was. Uh, uh, apparently was the increase, $40 per week. But as you point out, this is, uh, it's more complicated than that. Well, um, well it depends whether you look at the before tax or after tax impacts. Uh, I uh, I think the, in the real world, uh, any wage increase for any workers, but particularly low-income workers, is defined by what they what they spend after tax. 
And the story there shows that, in fact, this decision uh, continues the reduction in the standard of living relative to prices that has been uh, that is being experienced by workers, particularly those on low incomes. Uh, so the 5.2%, uh, when it's translated into real-world spending power, is considerably less. It's 81 cents an hour and a little bit. Yeah, OK. You know, just a, a percent point or two. Uh, and in the real world, that's 4.5% against the CPI increase at 5.2%. All right, so that's been more uh, realistic. Uh, yeah, that's the realistic, the real-world outcome of this decision. And the character of the decision being what it was is that for other low... Now, that's right at the minimum wage. I'm talking about the very minimum wage, the statutory minimum, below which is wage theft. And my prediction is there is going to be an escalation of attempts at wage theft by employers at uh, as a result of this decision. Uh, and that means workers must be talking about joining their union to work out ways of combination to prevent wage theft from taking effect. Uh, for other low-income workers, uh, the, the real-world impact varies very slightly uh, from one industry award to another because the decision means... For, so I take, for example, the Manufacturing and Associated Industries Award, the low-income workers there, um, and below the Commission's artificial cut-off point, the real world increase is 2.4 and 2.2%. And that's a lot less than the $40 that the Commission awarded for those workers. So what you're saying is that they're not on the minimum wage, but... Um, uh, and so those, those workers are low-paid workers. They are vulnerable workers on low wages below the tradesperson's rate. Right. Okay. And so the Commission uses the, the, the manufacturing industry tradesperson's rate as the cut-off point, uh, as, as, as sort of the notional cut-off point. Uh, and for workers who are, they regard workers who are on rates below that, and there are four classifications below that, uh, sorry, three classifications below that, including the... Uh, excuse me, four classifications below that, <laughs> uh, below the uh, tradesperson's rate, including the minimum rate. Okay, and, good. Yeah, so that means that uh, they, they, it, it, there's a real-world cut to living standards. Yeah, and that, even, no, that's, what, that's what the point of what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's what's going on in the real world. The $40 a week that everyone's talking about and so on is a shimmerer, and uh, we've got to really think about what happens with wages into the future, and it's going to be a big deal. It, I think it's very interesting. This is another Labor government, and I think since, 19, since the Whitlam government of 1972, just about every Labor government has inherited some uh, form of a recession that has been created by previous Liberal or Liberal National Party government. Yeah, yeah, that's... Well, uh, well, I don't it's, say created, I mean managed by... Uh, yeah, no, 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 but what they the do problem. is they, they, they ruin the machine and then they leave someone else to deal with the uh, repair. Yeah, their management of the, you know, the normal workings of this capitalist system that brings on recessions has been so poor that 
the Labor government is left having to deal with it. And, of course, when you couple it with climate change, uh, it's a diabolical set of problems for the new government. And working out how to deal with that, is go- how they deal with that, is going to be very interesting. Will well, you know, in, in, in New South Wales, they, decide that they think they should get the police out and put all the uh, climate activists in jail. <laughs> Quite uh, clearly, that's going to deal with uh, the climate problem. Yes, well, that, that deals with climate activism, or <laughs> is in, intended to, but whether it will or not is another question, of course. Um, the, uh, the two big events that are coming up now, you see, what we're, what we're going to be having now is a massive national discussion about what should happen to the standard of living in the context of no 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 gain at all in wages outcomes delivering improved standards of living they barely keep up if at all and in fact as we said they're falling behind particularly at the lower levels um when one thinks about someone like uh, uh joyce who runs Qantas or doesn't run Qantas, as the case may be yeah yeah what a lazy um, slug you know, he is you know yeah um huge, huge wages uh, called executive salaries. And then even Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank Governor, in 2018, he was on just over a million dollars a year in his role. So all these people who pontificate about how uh, wages have to be suppressed <laughs> to, in order to prevent them suddenly, suddenly, with no evidence to support it, uh, uh, adding to inflation is is rather outrageous. The uh, in, in your in your uh, recent Solidarity Dynamics um, blog, you bring up a very interesting uh, detail, which is the actual problem with uh, the mechanism that looks at this, which is that it's fundamentally anti-worker. The, well, the Fair Work uh, Commission process, uh, oh, oh, with the Reserve Bank itself, yes, and all of these, all of the different, yeah, the Commission, the uh, uh, Reserve Bank, all the people who are, all the instruments that are uh, giving advice, all have a fundamental and un- anti-worker component to them. Well, it's interesting with the Reserve Bank. So we have the Reserve Bank Governor and his board obsessed constantly with inflation. And yet the statutory responsibility, that is the law that defines what the responsibility of the bank is, does not mention inflation at all. What it talks about is managing the currency and making sure that it's stable. And then it says looking after the interests of the people. Now, there is no What is that, a sort of an 18th century English version of who the people are? Uh, white males of a particular class? Well, my understanding of the people is that, well, the, the people in general, the majority of <laughs> That's the, right. Not the capitalist class that makes up 10% or so of the population, If you, and that may be being a bit general, but I think that's roughly it. The the third statutory responsibility is, is striving towards uh, as close as possible to full employment. Now, they're the statutory responsibilities. Inflation is not a statutory responsibility. It is the theory that the Reserve Bank Board adopts 
to fulfil its statutory responsibilities. It's a theory only. And it's a theory it takes from economists like Milton Friedman, in other words, from neoliberal economics. Mm, That's right. Chalmers Uh, Chalmers taking on uh, his portfolio is doing an investigation of the Reserve Bank. Well, he's doing a review of the World Bank, uh, of, the, of the Reserve Bank. That's true. Yes. Now, where that's going to go uh, is really an open question. But I think that, uh, I mean, there's sort of silly talk of putting a union official on the board of the Reserve Bank. That that won't change very much at all. Bill Kelty used to be on the board of the Reserve Bank. That just and makes me laugh. expertise to it, but, um, you know, the Reserve Bank is what it is. It's actually a part of the network of institutions that its purpose is to reproduce the protection of profit-making and profitability. That's its, that's its fundamental purpose. And any attempt to try and fiddle at the edges about what the Reserve Bank does is not going to change that, in my view. I would be happy, you see, if there was a genuine reforming government, uh, Labor, Labor Greens or whatever, that was genuinely trying to shift the way in which the society works so it could take on climate change, could really make more democratic changes to parliamentary democracy, as we know it, all those sorts of things. If it was going to do that, well, you know, you would conduct a review and you would change certain things and make sure that the economics, the if you like, the, the priorities on full employment and the welfare of the people were more properly defined so that they did not mean the welfare of 10% of the population, the richest and most powerful corporations. Because when when Philip Lowe starts talking from his $1 million a year salary, he is not talking about the protection of working-class people. And that is a breach of statutory responsibility, in my view. I think they are a bunch of rogues, <laughs> and, I think, and I think, you know, there's a sense in which, in a fairly limp sort of a way, but nevertheless correct in principle, Sally McManus is sort of getting on to this in some of her recent uh, recent statements, although I don't think she'd go far, so far as describing them as rogues. Well, no, that um, wouldn't be politic, would it? But um, no, you, you but point the two out... Big events, yeah, go on. The two, yeah, the two big events, I reckon, coming up that provide a focus for this if you like, this escalated public learning about how living standards need to be struggled for are, of course, the uh, Employment Summit, which I thought was, I'd read was going to be in September, a tripartite summit, classic Labourism. Oh, yeah, uh, tripartite. And uh, uh, although I've been told that it may well be in October just before a week or so before the second big event, which is the October budget. Uh, budgets are normally um, in May. Uh, uh, Labor, the new government, I think, is fully entitled to reconstruct the budget according to its, its priorities. And so that will be happening in October. And somewhere between September and the week before, there's going to be this tripartite employment summit. Now, the Employment Summit is going to discuss, I think, all of these issues, including what changes should occur 
to the Fair Work Act that would enable um, some more, in inverted commas, fairness to be brought into the Act. Balance. Just how much and what kind, mm. there is a range of options. The employers don't want much, very much changed at all because it's working pretty well perfectly for them. Um, the uh, the second, uh, and, and I think the big issue will be, will the changes to the Fair Work Act provide more rights to fair work commissioners to handle disputes and things of that nature? And I think it's pretty certain that uh, uh, Labor would like to change the way in which the annual wage review works so that the Commission has more power to deal with the gender pay gap and depending on the detail, that would be probably a good thing. Uh, and so there's a, going to be a tension between rights for commissioners or rights for workers and their unions. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it would be interesting because, you know, there's this uh, ongoing Spitzer dispute where you've got the uh, tugboat uh, uh, operator, um, Spitzer wanting to basically throw the... Uh, uh, Agreement out, and um, I mean, it'd been working completely fine, but they want to throw it out and return all these people to award wages, which is uh, based on the uh, uh, Fair Work Commission's uh, clause that allows them to do this if the negotiations are intractable. But of course, employers are using it, it would be said and not in good faith, this particular clause. And I think that uh, unions would be quite happy to have that particular clause um, yes. altered. Yes. So how far will the changes go? Will they uh, pick up on uh, workers' rights in bargaining ge uh, generally? So, uh, And will, how much will it tame, uh, uh, protect enterprise bargaining as the primary means of getting wage increases above uh, the uh, the award rates. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that, you know, we have this annual wage review, which is for low-income workers and those who are on the minimum wage. Enterprise bargaining is this mechanism that we've had for a long time now, and it is falling apart as yeah. a mechanism. Uh uh, Alison Pennington has been doing some extra w excellent work tracking the fall in the number of agreements being negotiated and the number of agreements that are active and the number of workers being covered by them. The latest numbers show that uh, the number of agreements are significantly below, uh, right in December, uh, in December, significantly below what they were, um, say, three years before that. They're the latest. That's all the numbers Yeah, yeah, show yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's obvious. It's been... And the number... And they've the been white-handed. Guess what the wage increases are? What? So for the, all new agreements, the wage increases that will apply in the next three years, four years, two years, depending on the length of the agreement, are 27 and 2.6%. <laughs> And for all current agreements, that's all of them, though. In other words, those that are in existence beyond the new ones, they're running at 2.6 and 2.5%. Mm. So the wage, wage increases flowing from enterprise bargaining are actually less than what was achieved in the annual wage review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and are way below 
the 7% projected inflation rate. It's outrageous. It, it is. And so what we have as we head to these two big events is this debate. Now, one of the other things they're doing is trying to convince us that this that the CPI cost of living, which is projected to go to 7%, by no less than the Reserve Bank... Is the fault of increased wages, which is complete bullshit. Well, well, they're now now starting to say, well, no, we should use a different measure of of, um, cost of living increases. And it's called, it's been around for a while, it's called the... um, uh, the trimmed mean index cost of living. Oh, and so God. you'll hear that language. The, 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 the plain language, the uh, pundits attached to that at the Financial Review and the other conservative economists who pontificate on TV every night, they call it core inflation. This is core inflation. And they say it's running at 3.6%, and there should be no wage increases above 36 well, enterprise bargaining is not delivering anything close to 3.6. Well, that's hilarious, isn't it? It just certainly and marks these people as the cheer squad, the courtiers of uh, the ruling class. You know, basically, you can't listen to the conservative economists without uh, uh, knowing that uh, they're untrustworthy. Well, uh, of course. Now, where we go from there, we could go into great doom and gloom. Uh, but there's a better answer, and that is for all of us to embark, all listeners to embark on lifting our understanding of how the struggle for living standards should be defined and also uh, how we can participate in that struggle. It's not going to be won through advocacy. We are not going to protect or improve living standards through advocacy although at various points, advocacy in the halls of power and at commission hearings and so on is necessary. So what's your suggestion? Well, the most important thing is to build an organisation that goes to the streets, demonstrations, and eventually into coordinated industrial action that has defiant characteristics to it. And that means this is an opportunity for lots and lots of working-class political and economic education, that ought to be the big priority over the next six to 12 months because there's a wonderful opportunity for it. The Sally McManus has talked recently in the last couple of days comparing now with the 1970s, and she's essentially saying that now is very different. That is true, although there is one detail that she's got wrong. There are so many differences. Union density is down to around 15%. Union density amongst women is higher than it is amongst men at that very low level. Um, the composition of the workforce is much different with the, pre- with the incredible rise of various forms of precarious work. And back then, of course, there was a thing called the Conciliation and Arbitration Act that... Uh, uh, meant that uh, workers could pursue disputes as the basis of power for confronting the situation in the Commission. Nowadays, it's under the corporation's power. Enterprise bargaining framework is very different, but there is a certain continuity. In the 1970s, and young listeners should remember this because there's going to be a lot of nonsense talked about the 1970s in the next few months. 
Wages were chasing inflation in the 1970s for throughout the whole of the 1970s, except arguably for 1974. Uh, the big increases in 1974 came off the back of a horrible decision by the Fair, by what was you know what we now call the Fair Work Commission in 1967, and a period of using penal powers to suppress wages. So it was like a, a bursting out, a catching up. The the 1970s also marked the beginnings of the destruction or downgrading of manufacturing the destruction in some parts of Australia and the escalation of mining and turning Australia into its dependence upon uh, mining. Yeah, a great big hole in the ground. So all of these changes, all of the, but wages were chasing, uh, chasing inflation then for just about all through the 70s. The, the, the system was different, but on seven out of nine occasions, the Fair Work Commission awarded less than the CPI in a system where the CPI was supposed to be the minimum they could do. But they, And then on top of that, having awarded less than the CPI against its own principles, it then asked the unions whether their members ex were accepting partial indexation against the CPI. The purpose was if the unions answered yes then the Commission would continue with more decisions that were less than the cost of living. If the unions answered no, then the Commission would change the principles that would enable them to punish workers for uh, rejecting decisions that were less than the cost of living. Yeah, so yeah. it was like uh, there was one uh, commentator... We have to come to an end, so you have yeah. to... Uh, yeah. Uh, this is a complicated so, point to finish our conversation. Yeah, well, the, the the point I'm making is that you must not believe a lot of the public commentary about the 1970s that we're going to hear. Uh, it, it's uh, it, What is the same is that workers are chasing... Uh, attempts to increase wages are chasing increases in the cost of living. Yeah. The battle for living standards is on, and we must hold the government to its slogan. Okay. No one left behind. All right. Well, that's a good point to finish. And uh, we'll catch up with you with more of this conversation at a later date. That'll be terrific. Thank you, Annie. Thank you. That was Don Sutherland. Complicated stuff. Um, I, before we leave, uh, I'll tell you that uh, there is a rally on Sunday uh on the 3rd of July at 11am at the State Library, free Julian Assange, birthday rally and march. Um, it's very important that uh, public support for Julian Assange continues, uh, in my view. Sunday the 3rd of July, 11am, State Library of Victoria. And Robbie Thorpe, our very own Robbie Thorpe, will be leading off, uh, kicking off the uh, the rally. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with a song called Crossover. Uh, Emma Donovan. In, Emma Donovan is coming to town, so look up her dates. She's a great singer. Bye for now. Oh, hi, you're listening to Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. This is our track Crossover, which is a tribute and a 
um, honoured uh, song for my late mother, Agnes Donovan. CR Radiothon 2022. 3CR. Keep community strong. 3CR Radiothon fundraiser. June 2022. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate... Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now it's our Radiothon and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help keep community strong for another year.